Greetings, travelers. Welcome to another episode of Killing the Great White Male, episode 19, and a very special one. Um, all of them are special. Uh, this one has a different flavor to it because I got to circle back. Um, a little story here. Um, when I read uh, The Will to Change, um, that opening interview um, for Killing the Great White Male, uh, or the opening material for, by Bell Hooks for the, for the beginning of this uh, podcast, I immediately knew that something in my heart um, said, I'm going to have to read this with my dad. And uh, bought a copy of the book and sent it to him and said, hey, dad, will you read this thing, please? And he said, yes. And uh, and then I said, and will you come on my podcast and uh, record an episode with me about it? And uh, he said, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. And after several months of, of, of him being able to read it, and uh, it's a painful read, especially I know it was painful for me, and I've been doing this work for 15 years now. Um and and it, it it was for him as well. It's uh, it's it's an emotional read. It's not an easy thing. Um, so, but he agreed uh, to to record it with me, and uh, the conversation was fucking amazing. Uh, I'll just tell you. I hope you hang in there for all four of these episodes because it was uh, for me. It was transformative. Um, yeah. Uh, so. I guess I'm going to quit blabbing there. Um, I am going to remember to introduce him here properly, even though he's uh, known to me as dad. Um, he retired about a year ago from his position as director of bands at uh, California State University at Chico. Um, and he's a band director and leader. He, I, I talk about this sometimes, I, but I think it's important to note that when he was teaching, like, for example, the high school in the 80s that he taught at, Tokei High School, down in Lodi, California, um, which was really one of the towns I grew up in. Um, he he was competing uh, as director of, of that band program. He was competing with bands who had, even in the 80s, quarter of a million, half million dollar budgets. And uh, he had to figure out how to how to compete with that when he was working at a, uh, a town where, or in, in that particular high school, they, well... Yeah, they, they weren't going to have that budget. They were lucky to have a band program most times. Um, every now and then he'd get a student teacher, and, and that was his staff. That's it. That was his staff. So he was competing against bands who had um, staff. You know, they had marching instructors. They had field show instructors. They had uh, people teaching their dance squad, teaching their – you could run down all the different groups in a band and and, and the competition bands um, would, would have – people teaching all of those groups. Um, and that's not what my dad's budget was. So I, one of the things I remember the most about him was not just that he was a good conductor, um, uh, stay tuned in the, uh, in, in the podcast for that, uh, because, uh, he's, he's a phenomenal conductor. One of the jobs he, he turned down to, to take the Chico, California state university at Chico job was down at Cal state Northridge, which was, uh, it's a recording studio, band it's uh it's people in that uh wind ensemble down there um regularly are recording in in movies and 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 with all sorts of uh, recording artists so it's it's the closest thing that you have to a professional band in a college setting so coming back to the the notion of what my dad did with this band in the 80s he decided that the way he 
had to deal with uh, producing better results for the for the kids was he was going to have to teach them how to lead. And so one of the core components of his band program became the leadership training. So he, instead of being able to hire people, he had to figure this out and he had to become a better leader himself. He had to uh, research things about leadership and be able to take them on free retreats. I remember one, the first leadership retreat I ever got to go to in my eighth grade year was with his band kids up at a, a church in the foothills of, uh, of the Sierra Nevadas because that was their budget. And, and they had to fundraise to be able to do that because the kids couldn't afford it. Um, that, that particular high school at the time drew off of a really poor part of Stockton, California, the, the next door town. Um, so it just, these kids didn't have that. If, if he didn't have instruments for most of the kids in this band, they didn't have a way to play an instrument. So it was a really creative solution. And that's the kind of stuff that he ends up being known for. So it, I don't know why I'm babbling about all that, but I think it needs to be said that this is, band was this guy's life, uh, but it wasn't just band and it wasn't just music. Uh, he and my mom have always had this philosophy that the most important thing about what they did was the formation of human beings. Um, and, and that's had a huge impact on me. So, all right, I, I, we're going to stop this and we're going to dive into the episode with my dad. So here you go. Let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. Hello. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm great. Yay. Good. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I, <laughs> I always start out like this and I like, I, ha I have to, I have to tell you, you're, you're one of my dream interviews for this, uh, podcast. Um, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> no okay. pressure here. <laughs> yeah. Don't suck dad. <laughs> um, but it, it like for, for, for a lot of reasons, partially, I mean, I mean, you're my dad. So, like a lot uh, of of my approach to the world, um, I, I learned by imitating you and and mom. She's on my list too. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> but but this hopefully, book. Hopefully you hopefully you uh, you you use her as your model. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, okay. Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, so just for for our audience here, for um, a quick hello. Um, my dad is uh, Royce Tevis. Um, there's a little little abbreviation in front of his name. It says doctor. Uh, he uh, is... Well, okay, so I'm not sure I ever told you guys this, um, but when I was attending St. Olaf, one of the things that I, I still cherish about my time, my time there was realizing what incredible badasses the two of you are. Um, <laughs> It was really funny, Dad, because when I still have this memory of um, choir tour sitting on the bus near uh, Dr. Anton Armstrong, and it was around the time oh, when yeah. you were interviewing for the job up there. Yeah. And um, and I think you had just interviewed right like right before choir tour, um, and he he looked at me and he said, "He's really good, like." <laughs> 
I would love to work with him. It was something along those. I don't remember all of the words he said, but I remember like Dr. Armstrong is obviously also in this incredible badass category. And so like it was one of those to me in that moment of, okay, because I knew that you guys were really cool and like amazing at what you did. But I always, you know, that phase of life as a teenager and then leaving the home. There's also I came away and I think you guys encouraged this, that it was worth looking at what we had learned from you guys, you know, with a grain of salt um, and, and saying, you know, maybe you guys aren't everything to the whole world, even though you were sure. everything to my world. Right. Right. And and so it was really neat to I think that was the first time when I saw um, y- like some of your superpowers, so to speak. Like it was, it was really cool. It was one of those moments of, yeah, I I don't just respect you because you're my dad. There's also this thing that you do professionally that is, is, is off the hook. And the crazy part is I'm not even like, I know that you're an amazing conductor, an amazing musician, but I've, I've come to believe that it's actually the way you used those things to also to form human beings that that was that it was never music over people and it was never people over music it was to you that these things always had to coexist which is why you learned how to be a good leader and which is why you taught you know your your high school students leadership skills um like there was all this stuff wrapped up in it that was incredibly cool um so anyway um that's my by way of introduction to the audience this is my dad y'all um (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Royce. Yeah. It, it is interesting because when I get letters from students, yeah, nobody, very rarely does anybody say anything about a specific piece of music. Yep. It's almost always about the feelings they had as a person. Yes. Yeah. That is, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay, I guess we should get on with, with the important stuff here. Huh? <laughs> well, no, this actually is the important stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, so um, again, for the, for our audience, the uh, um, when I read uh, uh, "The Will to Change" by Bell Hooks, um, and I mentioned it several times in the interview. Oh my God, I wonder if my dad will read this book. So I sent it to him. Um, he he made it through the book. Um, <laughs> I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> um, and uh, and he agreed to have a conversation about it. Um, and. Because there's just so much here. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, do you want to go with overall impression? Where, where do you want to start? Um, not sure, but it was a difficult book to read for me. Yeah, um, me too. Partially, be, yeah, partially because of the content, but also because of the type of writing. Um, yeah. I would not, after reading 50 pages, I would have put the book down and, and just said, that's nice. Yeah. Um, although one of the things that caught my eye, of course, was the the uh, Maya Angelou quote that's right on the very front cover. Yeah. You know. Say more. Yeah. You know, and and that just it just I said, okay, if she's she's saying that uh, each offering from Bell Hook is a major event, then maybe I need to make it through here. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and it. Uh, so I've been reading, I've come to recognize the style that she writes in 
very much as like a um, there. One of the things I've never fit into the academy well, I think, is the kindest way I can put it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I flunked out of Saint Olaf, so we've just gotten done talking about that. I haven't talked about that on the air, but um, it. Uh, I I just and I struggled in grad school. Um, learning, trying to learn how to write for the academy was incredibly difficult. And there's this um, style of writing that I've come to recognize after reading a, a lot of black feminists and feminists of color um, as being something that is deliberate and counter to the white male academy, so to speak. Um, right. And so it, to me, it, it, I'm to the point now where it's comforting and reading white male academy work is actually very hard. <laughs> But so talk about the style and what was jarring or what like was uncomfortable or what would like, yeah, say more about that. Cause I don't, um, I don't remember this anymore. <laughs> I know yeah. it was there. I know I struggled with this. I hated reading stuff like this, especially back in seminary. I mean, bluntly. Yes. I, sure. I, I, I bet you had to read a lot of stuff yeah. that was written in this similar fashion. Yeah. One of the, one, one of the good things is, she quotes a lot of other um, very important um, people. Yeah. And um, but I guess it was like she, she used a sledgehammer basically to talk about patriarchy. Yeah. I mean, every single page had several times when it talked about patriarchy and how evil it is, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so you know, just reading about something that just keeps cracking you on the head is is tough and and we do know that patriarchy affects every everybody yeah everybody is you know including the people who are the patriarchs yeah I mean, which yeah. i think is her argument yeah i think so too yes yeah um it, it is very interesting because uh i believe it's it was a necessary uh thing um somebody has to be in charge and, you know, so from ancient times, uh, we really had a patriarchy. I mean, if you just look at the animal world, there, there is patriarchy, whether it be a, a, a female dog that's in charge or um, some other um, animals, the male that's in charge. So um, the dominant thing is there right on the base. And I, I think her point is that maybe we don't need to have that um, base, uh, that low level mm. um, where humans, you know, we can go we beyond can move that. beyond this. We can move beyond it, yeah. Yeah, we're not warlords so, anymore. We don't have to act like it. Yes, and I think that's part of the clash. If you think about it, that's part of the clash in the modern world. We have, we have uh, people who are uh, still in that um, culture and then we have other people who are in a, a culture where that is not the necessary norm. Although I'm sure there are people who would argue that it's still uh, still there. Um, that notion of power over, I, yeah. I question whether it was actually ever necessary. Because there are, I mean, it, it, so it's interesting that you bring up the animal thing. Like one of the, um, I mean, we know that our closest genetic relatives or chimpanzees um and and there are several 
uh, groups of chimpanzees that they look at statistically. Um, and of course, we know about the bonobos, um, who are, uh, again, genetically very similar. Their thing is they use sex to diffuse all sorts of things. But there were several, I would call them tribes of, of chimpanzees. Um, I know they have a real name that I don't remember. Um, but mm-hmm. packs um, of chimpanzees that are actually matriarchal-led and have been so long enough that matriarchy has become the thing that actually um, influences their culture, if that makes sense. So it's not... Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, one of the challenges that feminism ran into, I think, in the 70s is that... Um, and, and a lot of people are still there, is that, well, the goal was to hire a, a woman CEO, but she really just had to be a man. Right, in right. order to make it make it work, yeah. Right, and that's... Otherwise she, otherwise she wouldn't have been hired. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so it's both that, when we look back now, it's tempting to judge these folks, and we, we can't, because they were trailblazers. Um, yeah. And I hope... I, we also can't be stuck there because that's not the end of the of the story. And that that's what was interesting about one particular set of chimpanzees. I'll have to ask Sarah if she remembers the article that we read about it. Um, but it um, it looked at them, and they actually grooming ended up being the 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 center uh, the central central ritual for them. You know, so whereas the bonobos, everything was about sex, this particular group used grooming. So when they would get aggravated with each other, they would start grooming each other. Uh-huh. Um, and so it, it became this fundamental shift. And then the food distribution was the thing that the scientists could actually track, right? Um, and the food distribution shifted as well. And who got fed first changed. And uh-huh. all of these other crazy things that just kind of trickled out. So it... And so then you end up with males who are uh, end up in dominant positions, but they're not dominant, you know, quote unquote dominant, the way we think of dominant. They right. were behaving more like this other model. And it's false to pit it as patriarchy versus matriarchy, I think, long term. But I think we're still in the phase where we're dealing with the pains of patriarchy. So we have to, to look at that. But it, it was this interesting, like, holy shit, no, this exists in the... In the animal world, like it, it's out there too. Yes. That the notion of power with instead of power over can be very powerful. Um, I, I think that's, a, that's, that's very good. And I hope we talk a little bit about that in my chosen field a little bit later. And I think one of the things that also the book um, talked about was that hit me anyway, was yeah. a car- compartmentalization. Um, dampening of emotions. Yes. Same yeah. more. Yeah. And, um, and how that's not good. And yet uh, we do know that we sometimes in order to function, we have to do that. So like when yeah. I was in the military, one of the things that I had to do was, uh, play bugle oh, uh, God, several yeah. times, several times a day for a whole week uh, on end, uh, for weeks on end. Um, for uh, military who came home from Vietnam. Yeah. Um, most of the time they were uh, men. As a matter of fact, I don't know that I ever played a funeral for um, a military woman. At, at any rate, uh, in order to, to play TAFs, I had to channel my emotion, but I, but I had to compartmentalize my feelings 
as well in order to perform properly. Yeah. Yeah. It, so, in know, service I, I, of of whom? And there's the question, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think that's, I mean, I I guess what I hear with the way I heard that same phrase from her is, who whom were you serving that moment? Because I like I know you, I I've watched you play through tears before, um, and it's it's one of the things I always point out as as like, you know, I learned this stuff from my dad that it's okay for me to cry, um, and it. Like, whom were you ser- serving in that moment? Yeah, right. You know, yeah. I, in my yeah. head, I know that the reason this is emotional is I'm guessing you were serving the family. You were serving the 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 person that died, who shouldn't have died, who never should have been sent. Um, that's right. You know, yeah. and yeah. I, I think that's a very different thing than comp- uh, compartmentalizing because my job demands it in a power over thing. Right? Um, or how is that different? Yeah. To me, in my head, well, it's different. See, to me, to me, uh, the learned thing of compartmentalization, uh, learning to be able to compartmentalize, um, probably took took place in many different ways. Yeah. So, and know, sometimes it's so good, like, and sometimes it's not. I mean, that's the challenge, sure. right? Yes, that's exactly right. So, like you know, when I worked at the at the silly lab in um, San Francisco that had dogs uh, for experiments. And these, yeah. And these little dogs, uh, we fed them food that had um, uh, fertilizers mixed in with, with different amounts. And, you know, and part, our job really was only to take care of the dogs. Um, we didn't really have to record or anything, but you know, you had to compartmentalize the fact that that what you were doing for those animals was not a good thing. Yeah. You know, um, otherwise you couldn't do the job and, um, I had to do the job. I needed to work. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that all compartmentalization is wrong. Um, just like I'm not sure that all dampening of emotions is wrong however you know i don't know that i've ever been able to grieve properly for my mom yeah um at her funeral um you didn't cry and and in her book i know she, she talks about um men don't cry or something like that yeah yeah and um i can remember that just kind of banging around inside my head, you know, at my mom's funeral, because I had to be, I had to be tough for my dad because my dad was crying. Yeah. So, you know, when you, when you talk about, um, the patriarchy and all that, I saw my dad be emotional. I guess I was, I didn't realize it. I guess I was pretty lucky because apparently that wasn't the norm. Oh God, especially not. I mean, it wasn't even the norm Uh, for my generation. And yeah. for yours, that would have been, I mean, now at a funeral, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about um, church in general um, and, and funerals is that there are like certain exceptions. It's 
it's sometimes okay for men to have emotions in church. It's sometimes okay for men to be emotional at the funeral of their spouse or their child or their parent. But, but yeah, to, to note that this, I, I mean, what, what Hooks attributed this patriarchal system was in play so that, well, if dad is broken, I can't be, is still a mechanism that was in play. That's right. You know, so even though that had been large, and, and let's point out too that your dad was a hairdresser. Yeah, he, his, uh, his job was as a hairstylist. Probably today they would call him a, um, a hair designer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, uh, let's be clear. Yeah, this, uh, he did not run a barbershop. Yeah. He, yeah. He, had, right. he had people fly so you, up. You didn't come in. You didn't come in and say, uh, pointed to a picture and say, you know, I, I like a haircut like that. When yep. you came in, my dad would ask you, you know, What's the what event? you do for a living, who you are, where, what is this for, and um, design a hair specifically for you. So um, that's a very creative thing. Yeah. I think anyway. Well, and, and I mean, it shows when I remember... Uh, you telling me stories about people who would come up before the Oscars to have their hair done. They would fly up to San Francisco yes. to have their hair done and then fly back down for the Oscars. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, and people like Maria Callas, he'd, he'd always have to make sure what what, she, what opera she was doing mm. and um, because she would be wearing wigs and um, what kind of hairdo would be appropriate that she then could take her wig off and do a few things and her hair would look nice, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, he was, um, he had a different kind of, different kind of life. That's for sure. So I don't know about you, but stories like this about my grandpa are not stories that I hear a lot of about men of the greatest generation. Cause that's, I mean, just to put it into context, his generation is the generation that fought world war II and came home and had the baby boomers, who were my parents. I feel when I talk about grandpa that there's this notion of the like secret lives of men going on, although it wasn't a secret at the time. So that's the first episode. Um, It really is just (laughs) the beginning. (laughs) So I hope you stay tuned for more. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Uh, share it on your social media, share it on Instagram, whatever you're doing today. Um, and uh, uh, please visit our Patreon and consider becoming a patron of the show so we can have more great conversations like this. And so that when this damn COVID thing is over, I can actually go visit the people that we're interviewing and uh, sit in the same room and have these conversations face to face. So please jump in one way or another. But in the meantime, I'll talk to you on Wednesday.